Welcome to episode 17 of The History Files. We're recording this on June 10th, 2015. I'm Gordon Fry. And I'm Nancy Fry. Before we get started with our headlines of history, I just want to remind people that we love uh, to hear from you. You can head on over to SciCon.com and leave comments on our individual shows, or there's a contact form for SciCon. And uh, we have a group on Slack. I don't know if you're familiar with the application Slack, but it's a, a kind of a team communication chat sort of service. And uh, we have started a group called the Psychonauts. And uh, it's a great place for uh, people who listen to our podcast to talk to each other or to talk to us. And uh, another great way to keep in touch. Also, we'd love it if you would head on over to iTunes when you get a chance and uh uh, find PsyCon there, or the History Files, and or the History Files, and leave us some stars, leave a review, that will really help with our searchability on iTunes, and we'd really appreciate it. Um, all, all of the podcasts here at PsyCon would love to have you leave us some reviews, whether it's History Files, or Coffee with Jeff, or Game Punting, or Geek Days, um, all of them. would love to hear from you. With that bit of business out of the way... Let's get on to the news. Let's look at a few headlines from history. On June 11th of 1509, King Henry VIII married his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. She just happened to be the younger daughter, or youngest daughter, of Ferdinand and Isabella. Catherine acted as a confidant and advisor to a, as well as spouse until Henry's roving eye landed on Anne Boleyn. His contortions to end his first marriage in 1533 resulted not only in separation from Catherine, but also from Rome, the Roman Church, resulting in the formation of the Church of England. June 10, 1801. The first Barbary War erupts between the United States and the Barbary States after years of piracy against U.S. shipping. Fed up with routinely being forced to ransom crews and passengers, this was the first military action in foreign lands and seas authorized by the U.S. Congress. As a side note to that, it seems like in 1800, fully 20% of the U.S. federal budget went into tribute and ransom to these Barbary pirates. So it was no small amount of money that we were paying to them. It also seems like about every 200 years we end up fighting Muslims for some reason or another. Which leads us into June 12th of 1898. Emilio Aguinaldo, head of the Philippine Nationalists, proclaimed independence from Spain. Unfortunately, this declaration was never recognized by either the United States or Spain, who ceded the Philippines to the United States in 1898, the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Spanish-American War, and also precipitated a several-year-long revolt by, first off, the uh, Catholic 
population of the Philippines and later on the Muslim population of the southern Philippines uh, who also objected to our presence. June 13, 1900. After several years of drought and famine and resentment over the growing presence of foreigners, the Boxer Rebellion flared to life in Beijing, China, with multiple attacks on Christian churches and cathedrals. Many buildings were burned, sometimes with the occupants inside them. American Marines managed to repulse an attack on the Methodist mission and killed several Boxers, which alienated the Chinese and pushed the King well, Kang, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Q-U-I-N-G, government, to support the boxers. Even with foreign intervention, it took a year to put down this anti-imperialist rebellion. June 13th of 1971, the New York Times began publishing the Pentagon Papers, excerpts from a Pent- the Department of Defense study discovered by reporter Daniel Ellsberg, revealing previously unknown details of overt U.S. involvement in Vietnam from 1945 to 1967. Years later, the New York Times would say that the Pentagon Papers demonstrated that the Johnson administration systematically lied not only to the public but also to Congress. Ellsberg was initially charged with conspiracy, espionage, and theft of government property, but the charges were later dropped after investigators in the Watergate scandal discovered the Nixon White House had been actively trying to discredit him. The Pentagon Papers were not officially declassified in public release publicly released until June of 2011. June 13, 1983, the U.S. space probe Pioneer 10, launched in 1972, crossed the orbit of Neptune, the outermost planet at that time, and became the first spacecraft to leave the solar system. Its mission being a close study of Jupiter, in March of 72, it became the first spacecraft to traverse the asteroid belt. Photography of Jupiter began in November of 1973, and its closest approach was a month later on December 4. Pioneer's mission officially ended on March 31, 1997, when it reached 67 astronomical units from the Sun, even though it was still able to transmit transmit coherent data. The final, very faint signal was received on January 23, 2003, at 12 billion kilometers, or 80 astronomical units, from Earth. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For our media section today, I want to recommend Old Gringo, released in 1989, starring Gregory Peck, Jane Fonda, and Jimmy Smits. Gregory Peck portrays Ambrose Bierce, who is a fascinating character in his own right, who was uh, a San Francisco newspaper man and writer of some note. He wrote some really interesting short stories like The Incident at Owl Creek Bridge and was also responsible for a magnificent work called The Devil's Dictionary. Uh, Marvelous, sarcastic, cynical wit. Uh, And I highly recommend The Devil's Dictionary. Uh, Bierce famously also did a couple of other things, one of which was he was a founder of the Bohemian Club in San Francisco, which was originally founded by and for reporters. Now, interestingly enough, they forbid reporters... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from attending any of their events. Well, you know, that which is interesting in and of itself. But Ambrose Bierce, um, and the subject of this film, decided 
at the age of 70-something to run off and join Pancho Villa in, I believe it was 1914. Along with a lot of other Americans. Absolutely. Uh, There was an entire foreign legion that uh, Pancho Villa had in his Army of the North during the Mexican Revolution of 1911, which lasted into the 1930s. Um, pardon me, at least in the 1920s. But Ambrose Bierce himself is a fascinating character, and Gregory Peck does a marvelous job of mm-hmm. bringing him to life. And uh, on, a his- on another historical note, just as far as visuals go, as a- from a costumer's perspective, it's a really, really fine film. They really get it. Jane Fonda's wardrobe is really nice, and they really get just all of the visuals. They get a good flavor of the time, and what an interesting time period it was and what all these, ironically, bohemian Americans, what, what were they doing down there in Mexico? They thought they were doing something great and and contributing to a very positive revolution. Um, and they got on, almost all of them, once they got there, realized that they were in way over their heads. Absolutely. History lives again. For our main topic today, I want to discuss the American incursion into Veracruz, Mexico in 1914. Ever since Cortez landed in 1519, Veracruz has been the gateway to Mexico. uh, It is, has been, and probably will remain Mexico's largest port and her primary port of entry for imports. Within the last 200 years, there have been a fair number of these uh, these incursions, invasions of Mexico via Veracruz. To begin with, the Pastry War of 1838. Within the past 200 years, there have been a fair number of these incursions. The Pastry War of 1838, France took Veracruz to um, recover some debts. Mexico has some phenomenal names for their wars. I love that, the Pastry War. Uh, One of the important incidents in the Pastry War was General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana lost his leg due to a French cannonball hitting it, and he used that, his lost leg, as proof of his patriotism for several presidential elections slash takeovers. And his uh, leg was a major prize in the Mexican-American War of 1846 oh, to 48. That's not creepy at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is, it, is, it is kind of creepy. Um, that leads us into the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 48, where the U.S. conquered Mexico through primarily through Veracruz and took one-third of its territory. Uh, American soldiers also took Santa Ana's leg, uh, or at least one of his spares, and it presently sits in uh, the Military Museum in Illinois. About every generation or so, Texas discovers that Mexico still has the flag from the Alamo, and they try to get it back, and Mexico says, we'll trade it to you for Santa Ana's leg. And Texas says, well, where's Santa Ana's leg? And say, it's in Illinois. They try to get it from Illinois, and Illinois says, screw you, we don't want this Texas flag. We want Santa Ana's leg. So, pound sand. Anyway. When, <laughs> when were they doing that? They've been doing that for years. Oh, they still, they're still doing it. Oh, yeah. Texas keeps wanting to get the Alamo flag back, and when they keep being informed by Mexico that they will trade it for Santa Ana's leg, and Santa Ana's leg 
being in Illinois, and Illinois says we don't want a, a Spanish or pardon me, we don't want the Texas flag. So why should we trade it to you guys? Just sheer cussedness. <laughs> Pretty much. Whatever. <laughs> so um, there's a French intervention again in Mexico in 1861 when the Emperor Louis Napoleon, or Napoleon III, however you want to call it, um, with in concert with England and Spain, invaded Mexico to recover debts. However, the Spanish and British forces quickly withdrew from Veracruz because they saw where this was going. Louis Napoleon continued his conquest of Mexico and installed Maximilian of Austria, Archduke of Austria, as Emperor of Mexico. Uh, he was actually the second emperor of Mexico, the first being Agustin de Iturbide. But um, the United States made fairly stiff diplomatic objections to this. But since we were involved in a civil war at the time, the French were able to completely ignore our objections. It wasn't until 1865 with the secession of hostilities between the northern and southern sections of the United States, that the United States was able to impose its um, its will, shall we say, upon the French, or at least upon uh, Maximilian and his government. Uh, and we started sending uh, arms, ammunition, and money to um, Benito Juarez via... Uh, Juarez, the city of Juarez in El Paso in Mexico. Maximilian's government fell in 1867, and he was shot by firing squad, uh, and his wife Carlotta escaped to France and remained in widow's weeds for the rest of her life. Finally, there was the American occupation of Veracruz in 18, pardon me, in 1914, which is what we're going to discuss. A little background. The Porfiriato, or period of the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, ended in 1911 with the onset of the Mexican Revolution, which lasted on and off into the 1920s. The Wilson administration in the United States under President Woodrow Wilson began meddling in Mexican internal affairs for the benefit of American interests, i.e. corporations in Mexico. And the Wilson administration was far from the only one to do that. U.S. Ambassador Henry Lane Wilson, no relation to the president that I'm aware of, was implicated in the assassinations of Mexican President Francisco Madero and Vice President Suarez in February of 1913, just prior to President Wilson's inauguration in March of 1913. Uh, he was recalled by President Wilson. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> The Wilson administration refused to recognize the government of General Victoriano Huerta, who had been supported by Ambassador Wilson. The Mexican Revolution was in full swing by April of 1914, when constitutionalist forces fought Huerta's supporters in Tampico, which is about 300 miles north of Veracruz. USS Dolphin, which was actually one of the original uh, four steel ships of the new Navy of the 1880s, the ABCD ships, the Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, and Dolphin, uh, was dispatched to pick up mail and fuel in Tampico in, on April 9th. 
Due to several misunderstandings on both sides, the sailors of a whale boat, which had been dispatched from Dolphin, were arrested and held overnight. Huertz's government released the sailors within 24 hours with a full written apology of the incident. However, President Wilson, or the Wilson administration, demanded the raising of the American flag and a 21-gun salute by the Tampico garrison as well as the apology, and President Huerta refused that. Well, yeah, I mean, that was kind of... I mean, don't you think that was a little over the top? It's like really rubbing their face in it. Very much. Uh, <laughs> the interesting thing is that a few days before this, Dolphin had been in the... Which The reason Dolphin went in was it was the only American warship there that was uh, shallow enough draft to go into the harbor at Tampico. But they had fired several 21-gun salutes um, to the Mexican flag and uh, for... Um, a Mexican holiday, oh, just, um, just as a courtesy, as a courtesy, and so it wasn't as far off as it could have could be construed because we had just given them several twenty-one gun salutes, but still it was a little, little bit extreme. Yeah. So okay. So given that, given that they had already been doing twenty-one gun salutes, because that was one of the things that he requested. He wanted the flag. He wanted a twenty-one gun salute. And I mean, all this is because these poor guys were just getting fuel. And they didn't speak Spanish, and the Spanish police or soldiers didn't speak English. And they were like, what are you doing? And the guys were like, what? And, well, <laughs> and the Mexican forces there had been expecting an attack by constitutionalist forces, oh. and they didn't understand that the Americans were there. Were. Yeah, the Americans were just there to get fuel. It was lots and lots. It was misunderstanding yeah. on top of misunderstanding. So... Um, so it was, you know, a regrettable incident, but it was apologized for in writing. Okay. So, you know, it was kind of an... Wilson was not a nice man. <laughs> <laughs> President Wilson was a very strong Presbyterian progressive, and he was very full of himself. Yeah, I know you don't care much for him. <laughs> I don't like him one bit. <laughs> Uh, I think he was probably one of the most racist presidents we've ever had. And uh, this includes all the the other Southerners that have been president. But he personally was responsible for demoting um, black sailors in the United States Navy to uh, only being able to be stewards uh, and cooks and things like that. Oh, really? Before that, they could move up the ranks? Absolutely. It was, <laughs> uh, in the Civil War, they were they had a great deal of freedom. Uh, to move through the ranks by 1910, it was somewhat restricted, but pers Wilson personally made sure that they were not allowed to be anything other than cooks and stewards. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I don't like Wilson for a lot of reasons, and that's one of them. Anyway, on April 22nd, President Wilson asked Congress for permission to land an armed force in Veracruz. However, it was already underway. Uh, also, a destroyer flotilla was sent from San Diego south into Mexican waters on the west coast of Mexico. It almost seems like the, the this incident with the shore party, the guys in the whaleboat, it was just an excuse. He was going to do this anyway. It could well have been. There was... Um, I'll get into this a little later, but there's a whole incident about 
a German ship carrying weapons that was coming into for Huerta's government that was is a very long involved story on that and how most of the arms and ammunition actually came from Remington Arms in New York went to Russia picked some stuff up went to Germany picked some stuff up and then was on its way to Mexico to avoid American arms embargo uh but the Germans didn't the German government on the spot in Mexico didn't want it landing either and the Americans were being very obtuse about things and anyway it it's a whole other <laughs> situation that was going on so on a sliding scale of legitimate grievance to at one end to false flag on the other end how far to the left or right of center is this whole incident do you think uh it's i don't know uh this is one of those situations where i personally think it was just the american government way overreacting uh the wilson administration did not like the huerta government there's no question about that uh they considered huerta to be a thug they probably weren't far off but then they replaced him with carranza who was also a thug so you know it's another one of those cases where the American administration is supporting thugs um, to do our bidding and replacing one thug with another thug who does our bidding better. I don't know. So a lot of opportunism is going on. So anyway, on April 21st, this is the day before Wilson asked Congress uh, for permission a landing party from USS Florida, USS Utah, and the transport USS Prairie landed some 500 Marines with a Blue Jacket battalion of about 300 sailors under the command of Captain William Rush of the Florida. Blue Jacket battalions have a long and storied history. From the very first pirates to swarm ashore to sack some village to the Greek invasion force of Troy to the Royal Navy supplementing its Royal Marines ashore with sailors, the idea of using sailormen as soldiers is a very long one. By the 19th century, it was standard practice in Western navies to train and arm naval battalions for service ashore in, some, in far, uh, the far-flung reaches of the globe. Much of the demand for improved small arms, in fact, in the second half of the 20th, pardon me, the 19th century, came from navies because they expected to be out in the middle of nowhere with not much help um, facing perhaps swarms of rather upset locals uh, who may may or may not have appreciated the introduction of Western um, <laughs> Western capitalism uh, onto their shores. So repeating rifles and various machine guns, such as the Gatling gun, the Gardner gun, and the Nordenfeldt, and then later the Maxim machine gun, um, were all, in fact, pushed by the navies. The British Army was quite happy with its single-shot Martini Henry rifle up and through the 1880s, but the navy was not. They noticed that the French had adopted a repeating rifle, um, the French Navy certainly in 1878 had. The American Navy in 1879 had uh, adopted um, two different repeating rifles, the uh, Winchester Hotchkiss and the uh, Remington Lee. The French Navy had adopted the Kropatichek. 
and the German army in 1884 had adopted their uh, 71-84 Mauser, also with a tube magazine, just like the Kropatichek underneath its barrel. And so the Royal Navy was starting to feel a little undergunned. Also because these foreign, these countries other than the Royal Navy, um, that the Royal Navy might have to deal with, they were busily selling guns everywhere else. So um, there was a major push that the infantry didn't even necessarily see or care about, but the naval battalions and their marines definitely felt the need for a lot more firepower. So in, in, at this point in history, the Navy of any country is going to be the outfit that is... Um, they're the ones who are out in the world, in the you know, basically in forward positions, doing things, kind of running point for any given country, and and so yeah, they're going to want to. It, it's logical that they would want to have the latest tech and 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 be on top and be self-sustaining, be able Absolutely. to be able to to, um, to to basically resupply themselves. Right, and that's the important thing because when an army lands, it usually brings all kinds of support material with them and support battalions and this, that, and the other thing. When the Navy lands with the Marines, they have what they bring with them. They have what's on board those ships right then, and that's about it. So when you send in the Army, you're sending in a full invasion force. When you're sending in the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, certainly at that time it was just... Uh, you know, a brief landing party to just go, oh, I don't know, take Alexandria or... <laughs> like you do. <laughs> yeah, like you do. Uh, anyways, uh, small things like that. Let's attack Samoa. Let's uh, take over Veracruz. Anyway, um, so high firepower was definitely something that the navies of the world were far more concerned with than the armies, oddly enough. The American use of Blue Jacket battalions was well established in the 19th century. Sailors and Marines organized for infantry combat were the primary U.S. armed forces in the conquest of California in 1846 and 47. Desultory fighting began in Veracruz in 1914 after most of the original objectives had been achieved. Rear Admiral Frank Fletcher, who, interestingly enough, was the father of the World War II Admiral of the same name, resolved to take the entire city of Veracruz due to sniper fire erupting from various places outside the American lines. A second landing force of Blue Jackets and Marines from the USS New Hampshire, under the command of Captain Edwin Anderson, took the Mexican Naval Academy, and with reinforcements, the Naval Landing Party's had secured most of Veracruz by April 23rd. The sniper fire continued, however. On April 24th, the U.S. Army's 5th Reinforced Brigade under Brigadier General Frederick Funston, the hero of Cuba, arrived to relieve naval forces um, in their task of holding Veracruz. Meanwhile, U.S. naval forces dispatched to rescue Americans in Ensenada, Acapulco, and Mazatlan were uh, busily doing such. Um, and there were in, uh, demands from, for invasion from various sources in Congress. Uh, it seems like whenever there's a minor difficulty, or, we have demands for invasion of other countries. Uh, usually these things are 
you know, just outbursts for, uh, by politicians looking for votes, being demagogues. Uh, but occasionally they get a little bit of traction and you wonder why, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> anyway, uh, U.S. forces evacuated Veracruz finally on November of 1914 after Brazil, Argentina, and Chile mediated the issues. The results were after 50 years of cooperation between American and Mexican governments, we began a new era of hostility and distrust. The replacement of Huerta by Venustiano Carranza as the president of Mexico uh, was one of many presidents in rather quick succession. Again, as I said earlier, Carranza was just as much a thug as Huerta. Madero, the guy who had been assassinated by, or that the American ambassador was implicated in his assassination, was actually a pretty decent guy. He may have been a little naive, but he doesn't seem to have been an evil person. Um, again, in the words of the president of Ecuador, the United States will never have to worry about a coup d'etat because there isn't an American embassy in Washington. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, ouch. Uh, there were lots of resentments, lasting resentments from Mexico over the American incursion in, uh, at Veracruz. Pancho Villa, in fact, had his own incursion into the United States in Columbus, New Mexico in March of 1916, two years later. And also the Zimmerman telegram, the so-called Zimmerman telegram of January 1917, in which Germany was purported to be offering Mexico back its possessions that, or its its land that we took from it in 1847-48, in return for getting the United States involved in a war to keep it out of World War I, uh, helped speed up our eventual war with Germany. For notes of interest, Smedley Butler, the most highly decorated American serviceman prior to World War II, received his second Congressional Medal of Honor for activities at Veracruz. He felt he hadn't actually earned it and tried to give it back, but was refused and ordered to wear it. He was, uh, his was one of 56 which were awarded to the Navy and Marine forces at Veracruz. Butler later wrote, War is a racket, proclaiming that he had been a high-priced muscle for American businesses during his service in the Banana Wars. And he was also recruited to help in a coup d'etat against uh, President Roosevelt, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, which he then exposed to the federal authorities. Uh, So, rather interesting. Butler was also a major supporter of the bonus marchers in 1932. Interesting, because wasn't it, uh, who was it that basically led the attack on the bonus marchers? Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur, yeah. Douglas MacArthur, in fact, was also there at Veracruz as a captain. Uh, Butler was a major at the time. Captain Douglas MacArthur was a, uh, an intelligence officer on the staff of General Funston. Sergeant Major John Quick of the United States Marine Corps was also a recipient of uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, not there, but earlier. 
he was awarded, I think, a Distinguished Service Cross. Maybe that was for, that was, sorry, pardon me. Distinguished Service Cross was for his actions in World War One. Ah. But Major John Quick uh, was the one who raised the American flag over Veracruz. Using tactics of knocking walls in adobe houses to go house to house was utilized by American forces exactly like they had done, uh, their forefathers had done in Mexico City in 1847. It was found that being on the streets was mm, pretty much suicide and therefore going from house to house by way of doors that they made with picks and shovels was the best way to go about it. Oh, so so basically to stay, just to use the houses as, as continuous concealment and cover so they never had to go out. They would just go from house to house by busting through the walls? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. Tunneling and through the houses. Tunneling through the houses, and that's exactly what we ended up doing in uh, several cities in France in World War II and which the Russians did in uh, Grozny and Chechnya in the early 2000s. And um, it's just a, a good tactic if you can't be out on the street. Furthermore, it is interesting that American naval forces acted prior to Wilson getting authority from Cong- Congress, supposedly in order to intercept this arms shipment from Germany to Huerta's government. However, the arms were actually from Remington, again, purchased by an American who sent them first to Russia, then to Germany to avoid the embargo. Unfortunately, we jumped the gun if that was our actual intention to grab these because they were still on a German flagged ship, which we could not board and take because they were a neutral. They had nothing to do with this. And had we waited until they were actually in the customs house, we could have impounded them when we took it. But that wasn't going to happen. Finally, this seems to be the first use of American naval aviation in combat as aerial observers flying float planes from the USS Mississippi. They flew several sorties, uh, were shot at, and uh, performed a valuable service in actually finding where you know good artillery targets were for the American uh, naval artillery. So, so were these guys um, Army Air Corps? Was this the first of the Army Air Corps? No, they were Navy. Oh, they were Navy. These were naval aviators, the very first naval aviators, and they were flying these float planes. That um, so, American naval aviation actually for combat flights predated the European combat flights in World War Two. Pardon me, World War One by several months. Well, it seems like that's the way it, uh, I remember when I was taking aviation science in high school, my teacher said, if you want to, if you want to fly planes in the military, don't join the Air Force, join the Navy, because <laughs> your likelihood of actually being able to fly is much better in the Navy. Or if you, if you really want to be a pilot, especially if you want to be a combat pilot, join the Navy, don't join the Air Force. Gee, the Air Force recruiter told me exactly the opposite. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, he told you to join the Air Force? Air Force recruiter did. So uh, if you want to fly, oh, well, you better, of course. But I, I wanted to be. You're in the better infantry. off in the army than in the Air Force. Well, there's a, the army has a whole lot more aircraft, mm-hmm. but they're all rotary. So and I don't uh, trust rotary wings. So anyway, huh. 
Anyway, for more information on naval interventions by the United States, uh, you might want to check out laststandonzombieisland.com. We'll have that in the notes. <laughs> okay. Uh, for a nice article which actually lists at least most of these interventions, starting with our intervention in uh, uh, North Africa in the uh, with the with the Barbary pirates in 1801. Hmm. La- so the the URL is all one word. Last stand on Zombie Island. It is last it stand is. on Zombie Island. All one word. Dot com. Yep. Huh. Uh, fascinating site. <laughs> and huh. And that's that's on that's on naval just a whole bunch of stuff on naval interventions by the US. They have yeah, a nice big blog post. Where did they get the where did they get their title? I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. Oh, it's catchy. It's catchy. Zombies are in. Okay. What can you say? Okay, yeah, that'll definitely be in the show notes. Okay, well, that ought to do it. That ought to wrap it up for this week's exciting adventures <laughs> um, in the history files. I'm Gordon Fry. I'm Nancy Fry. Join us next week for another one of these. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at SciCon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash T-H-F. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad Cat. Meow. June ter- excuse me, June thirteenth, nineteen eighty-three, the U.S. space probe. We're just gonna start that over.